Uh, we're going to go to Psalm 66. We're going to continue our Bible study here. So getting back to our Psalm study and start with our summary for Psalm 66. Psalm 66 praises God for the past deliverances of Israel and anticipates the future deliverance that means salvation for the world. I'll go over that one more time. Psalm 66 praises God for the past deliverances of Israel and anticipates the future deliverance that means salvation for the world. A simple outline for this psalm would be in two parts, verses 1 to 12, calling all the earth to praise God. Verses 13 to 20, the witness of God's covenant faithfulness. I'll go over that one more time. Verses 1 to 12, calling all the earth to praise God. Verses 13 to 20, the witness of God's covenant faithfulness. All right, so Psalm 66 does not name an author. It does have a superscription to the chief musician, a song or psalm. Uh, so it is one of what are called the anonymous psalms, where there is no named author um, at the, the superscription. Um, there are actually four anonymous psalms in book one. There are four in book two. Uh, there's none in book three. Um, there's 14 in book four and 28 in book five, which makes for a total of 50. So out of the 150 psalms, there are 50 of them that do not have an author um, ascribed in the heading or superscription of the psalm. Now, this psalm, actually, in Psalm 67, is the next one in, in book two. So these two psalms, 66 and 67, together um, do not have an author name, though they both have a superscription. So the placement of these two psalms, 66 and 67, they're placed within this David group of psalms that we have been in. And it also has strong connections with the adjacent psalms, meaning that it is reasonable to assume that David is the author. Also, we could point out that it is bookended by David's psalms. In other words, Psalm 65 and Psalm 68 are clearly ascribed to David. Uh, and also, these two psalms in the position they're in do reflect continuity through this subgroup, this 65 to 68, which is a subgroup in this larger David group of psalms in book number two. And they do show continuity with those psalms um, thematically. And the Messianic overtones in this psalm also give us another good reason um, 
because what happens to the psalmist has implications for the world. And we'll talk about that more a little later on. So there's, in other words, there's, it's reasonable um, to uh, take it then that it was written by David. Uh, we can't be completely certain about it, um, but it certainly is, I believe, a reasonable assumption. Uh, the psalm is directed to the chief musician or to the choir master. It is called a, a psalm and a song. So it is like Psalms 65 to 68. This entire group um, have these things in their heading. Uh, it's intended to be sung to stringed instrumental accompaniment. Um, it also has three selahs in the text, giving musical direction uh, in, at the end of verse 4, 7, and 15. There is no occasion that is mentioned in the heading of the psalm. There's no occasion mentioned in the text of the psalm. So to categorize Psalm 66, it's, we would categorize it as a praise or a thanksgiving psalm. Um, it, it certainly follows the conventions of a praise song, uh, a psalm. There are um, calls to praise there throughout the psalm, not just at the beginning, but actually throughout the psalm, there are various calls to praise. There are catalogs of praiseworthy attributes and acts of God that are interwoven with the calls to praise in the psalm. And when you think about it, praise or thanksgiving psalms are typically like resolutions to lament psalms. So when we look at a, a lament psalm, typically um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a direct address to God. There's, a, there's an appeal to God. There's some sort of crisis and complaint that is given. There's some sort of petition asking for God to act and to deliver in some way. And then usually the lament ends with a vow or a commitment to praise God when that deliverance is effected. All right, so that's a lament psalm. That's just the typical conventions of a lament psalm. So a praise psalm is sort of sort of like the other side of that coin. It um, is a psalm that is focusing on praising God. It speaks as if that deliverance has already happened and is praising God for it, even though as can be seen clearly in this case, when the psalm is written, the deliverance hasn't happened, and it's a future prospect that is being looked at. But this psalm then, as a praise and thanksgiving psalm, functions well in this group um, because early in the David group, there were a number of lament psalms, and uh, the latter part of the group contains a number of, of praise psalms. And this is also um, found in the Korahite group of psalms as well. We've talked about uh, that when we were looking at those. So that would be the, the primary um, psalm type. Uh, it does contain some prophetic predictive elements. Um, it looks forward to the conquering of the earth and the nations worshiping God. Um, it does contain some historical narrative elements. It re makes references to the past deliverances of Israel and, of course, the, their significance for um, what is anticipated in the future. So Psalm 66 has connections with these preceding David Psalms, um, particularly um, Psalms uh, 51 to, to 65 up to this point, but particularly connects with Psalms um, 65 through 68. So that little subgroup we've been talking about that we're in. Uh, the use of the term song in the heading, as well as the singing of praise in the text. Singing is, is continually repeated um, in the text of the psalm as well. 
And it shares connections within this David group, within the Korahite group, um, like we've talked about. Other earlier Psalms also that refer to the universal praise and worship of God, which there are a number of those that we have already um, looked at. There are some in the Korah group, some in the David group as well. Um, the prophetic elements also share some connections with the prophets. So particularly, there's a description of the suffering of Israel in exile. And these echo the terms and, and imagery um, from the descriptions of the prophets about this time um, on Israel and also tending toward the resolution of that, which is the restoration of Israel as well. So the poetic imagery of Psalm 66, so the mood of the, of the poem being a praise psalm, as we would expect, it's very bright. It's very, it's very hopeful. Um, this, is a, this particular psalm is just, just effusive in praise. There's just continual um, praising of God throughout the psalm. Uh, you do have some darker elements, um, like when talking about um, being uh, being tried and refined as as silver and and those sort of things. Some of those some of those elements are a little darker, but they're not allowed to dominate the psalm. They don't dominate. They don't or, uh, they don't dominate and they don't dim the brightness of the whole psalm. And what is interesting about it is that they're looked at in a future retrospect. So the, these things that are being written about are future to the psalmist, is anticipating this future, but is also he's writing as if these things have happened and he's looking back on it, um, which, you know, again, is a poetic device. So you have an interplay in this psalm, actually, between past, present, and future. Um, there's, there's a bit of imagery in this psalm as well. The imagery here is sometimes historic, so it, it's, it's literal imagery, um, and sometimes it's more figurative imagery. So historic imagery would be like the drying of the sea and the drying of the river in verse 6 so that they could walk um, across on dry land. Um, that would be historic imagery. The figurative imagery would be um, the people, and, and this would be a reference to Israel, obviously, being tried like the refining of silver in verse number 10. Um being caught in nets, having heavy burdens laid on them in verse number 11, um, ha being ridden over their heads and passing through fire and water in verse number 12. So those are more figurative um, images that are used to speak of the sufferings and the testings of Israel, particularly in, um, in the time of their exile, which they are still in, um, and the time of their um, purifying. Now, in the structure of the psalm, we, we see a definite shift. So in verses 1 to 12, you have this continued use of the plural pronouns. It's we and us and our. And then beginning at verse 13 through the rest of the psalm, it shifts to the singular, which is actually the reverse of what we typically see in a praise psalm and what we might expect. We might expect it to start more singular, to start more uh, more personal, and then to extend out communal or even worldwide. Um, but this psalm does the opposite, which is interesting. Um, okay, so let's let's work our way um, through this psalm. It has 20 verses. I'll go ahead and, and read through here. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. 
Say unto God, How terrible art thou in thy works! Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. All the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name, Selah. Come and see the works of God. He is terrible in his doing toward the children of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in him. He ruleth by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. O bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, which holdeth our soul in life and suffereth not our feet to be moved. For thou, O God, hast proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net. Thou laidst affliction upon our loins. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth have spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats. Selah. Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. I cried unto him with my mouth. He was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. So verses 1 to 4 are the opening call to praise. Um, the uh, exhortation to make a joyful noise is actually an echo of the shout for joy that we saw at the end of the previous psalm, Psalm 65 and verse number 13. And we see this call to praise that comes in these opening verses is a call that's extended to all lands or to all of the earth. And this term has been used um, frequently in the, in the psalms. Uh, more recently, uh, Psalm 57, verse 5 and 11, Psalm 59, verse 13, Psalm 65, 5. Um, and we could also uh, the, the Korah, um, talk about the Korah Psalms, 46, 10, 47, 7, um, 48, 10. Um, so in other words, the, these are the latter part of the David group, and we're seeing this concern of universal praise and worship of God. And that, again, reflects what we saw in the Korahite Psalms as they progressed, as they began um, with the laments, with the exile and the um, abandonment themes and, and judgment themes of uh, the oppression of enemies and came into deliverance with the coming of the king and, and so on and extended praise to all the earth. And so we see that being reflected here in these David Psalms as well. Um, there's, direction, there's directions here to praise his name, and that's echoed again in verse number four. Um, but here it is, the honor of his name. And this word honor is the Hebrew kavod. Uh, we've talked about that a number of times, and, and just a, a term I want you to get familiar with and to recognize. It, it's a significant term um, throughout the Psalms and throughout all of the Old Testament as well. Uh, translates into the into the New Testament as well. Um, it's, it's the word for glory, most often translated glory, the glory of his name. And we have noted numerous times how that this Hebrew term kavod is used um, as a motif of kingly glory and power. And that's not only within the Psalms, it's also in the law, that's also within the prophets. But we see it in the Psalms, beginning with Psalm 3 and verse 3, the first time that it appears um, in reference to kingship there. 
uh, Psalm 4 and verse 2, Psalm 7 and verse 5, Psalm 8 and verse 5, Psalm 16 and verse 9, Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10. And of course, I chose those Psalms out of book one because they are heavily Messianic Psalms and the use of glory in reference to God's anointing king. Now, more recently in the David group, we have seen this term used, Psalm 57 in verses 5, 8, and 11, as well as in Psalm 62, verse 7, and Psalm 63, verse 2. Uh, the glory of his name is to be praised. Um, we read of God's terrible works in verse number three. Uh, the word for terrible, of course, would be um, uh, sort of like awesome, awe-inspiring, um, bringing people to awe um, at God's works. Um, this is a, a term that is associated with the exodus from Egypt. Um, so we've seen it in Psalm 26 and verse 7. We saw it in the last Psalm, Psalm 65 and verse 5, and we see it forward in Psalm 106 and verse 22. In other words, this terrible, this awesome works referring to that deliverance. And we find it here in this Psalm, and no surprise, when we get down to verse 6, we're going to see references to the Exodus. So God's judgments and the exercise of his power in verse 3 are resulting in the subjugation of all of his enemies. They are bowing, um, cringing, trembling before him, uh, reflecting the song of Moses uh, in Exodus 15 and verse number 14. Now, the opposition of enemies has obviously been a theme in this David group. The enemies are mentioned here, and they've particularly been a, a part of the crisis and complaint that we have seen in the laments. They have contributed to the exile. They've contributed to the judgments, to um, the, the, the trouble that David um, has been suffering. Um, but here we, we see that remedied. We see that, it, that God has brought them um, to bow before him. Um, verse 4 gives this uh, call to praise uh, or shows how this call to praise in verses 1 to 3 in particular anticipates the future universal worship of God by all the nations or all the, the peoples. Um, verses 5 to 7 then follow with a call to praise and a catalog of works. Um, so when we have a praise psalm, typically there's a call to praise and then there's reasons given for praise, reasons why God should be praised or particular works or attributes he should be praised on account of. And so we have we have that here in verses five to seven, um, the praise of his of his works. And he, he repeats this word that's translated terrible, um, his works that are um, again awe inspiring, um, his works, and specifically he says toward the children of men, and that is Beni Adam, sons of Adam, literally. Um, we've seen that in Psalm 53 and verse 2, Psalm 57 and verse 4, Psalm 58 and verse 1 in this David group. But we've also noted as we've gone along um, that, there, that that phrase is not used a lot in the Psalms, and, and typically um, it does carry some freight with it. Um, so the call to behold the works of the Lord has been associated with, with the day of the Lord imagery. And we've pointed that out as well as we've been going through the Psalms, how there are um, day of the Lord imagery where, where God's judgment and his works among the, the sons of Adam, the children of men on the earth um, is echoed in the language that we find in um, uh, spoken of about the day of the Lord in the prophets. 
So uh, Psalm 46, verse number 10, and here in the, uh, that's in the Korah group, in the David group, we see it in Psalms 60 and 58, um, and, and um, then the Ace of Psalms, Psalm 58, another Korah Psalm, Psalm 48. All of, these ha- all of these make use of this imagery. In verse number six, then, we get this historic imagery. So he speaks of God turning the sea into dry land and going through the flood on foot. In other words, the water being parted and walking across. And he actually makes reference here to the sea, um, which is a term obviously referring to the Red Sea. Um, This is Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 to 22. Um, When God parts the waters, they go across on dry land. But that also happened again um, when they crossed the Jordan River and entered into the promised land. And actually the word for flood that's translated flood here uh, literally means a stream or a river. And again, it's a term um, used to speak of the Jordan River. So it's, so, so it's these two crossings, um, these two great deliverances, um, and that's Joshua chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, um, that are being referred to. So God is being praised for his mighty works when he delivered his people from Egypt by bringing them across the Red Sea on dry land and bringing them into the promised land on dry land across the Jordan River. In verse number seven, then, we have something of a warning that that is very similar to what we see like at the end of Psalm number two. So God is is spoken of as having rule or having dominion or um, by his power. And that's a term used in Psalm eight and verse six, uh, Psalm 22 and 28. Again, heavily Messianic Psalms and Psalm 59 verse 13 here more recently in this David group. And what we see here is that God's rule, his dominion extends to the nations and they must be subject to him or face his anger. And again, very, um, very much echoing um, Psalm 2, um, particularly the latter part, but really the whole Psalm that speaks of the nations raging against God. So the deliverance of the, at the Red Sea and the deliverance across the Jordan anticipates the conquering of the nations, and the restoration of his people Israel. And again, these are the past works. These are the the past works where God has made himself known. He has shown himself to be mighty, and he's also shown himself to be faithful to his promises. And because of that past performance, this future is anticipated as secure. Verses 8 to 9 give us another call to praise and sort of a general catalog. So the call here in verse 8 is to the people, the Ami. Um, the Ami, and that that is peoples, plural. So um, refers oftentimes to nations, um, kindreds, that, that sort of thing. So he's specifically calling the nations to praise God for, for the deliverance of Israel. And that is certainly um, key in this psalm. These mighty works of God that he speaks of, these crossing of the water, dividing of the water and crossing on the dry land, these are works on behalf of his people Israel. And this psalm is calling on all of the nations uh, to to the ends of the earth to praise God for his works toward and for his people of Israel. In verse 9, this is, um, again, evident that he's referring to the deliverance of Israel that he's calling the, the people to praise God for. 
um, his people were kept among the living. In other words, Israel has not been destroyed as a people from off the face of the earth because of God's sovereignty over them and over the world. So when you look at the imagery in the prophets, you see um, references to the judgment that comes on them. They're scattering over the earth. And, and even in um, one, of, in fact, one of the images that Isaiah uses um, in a few different instances is that of a burned stump. Like they're a, they're a tree that's been cut off and the, the stump that's left there has just been charred and burned. And it looks like there is no life there, but there is. And of course, that is, um, so they have, so that is um, the faithfulness of God to his word. He, they were kept from passing out of the land of the living. Verses 10 to 12 um, speaks of God's works in the exile. All right. So this is that, this is that future retrospect. Um, the works, the exile that has been promised. And we've talked about that a number of different times. You go back to places like um, Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 28, I think it is. And there's parts of Leviticus as well, that even at, at the giving of the law, that it was foretold that they wouldn't keep it and that they would end up being scattered off the land. But in the latter day, that God would turn and have mercy on them and would restore them. So, Verses 10 to 12 then are giving us this description using this imagery again that's common in the prophets to speak of this time. And the images here, it, it's, sort of a, it's sort of a double-layered meaning. So, so some of these images also refer to the bondage in Egypt, which the bondage in Egypt is also um, a shadowy picture of their future exile. So there's, there's reference to the bondage of Egypt. There's reference to the wilderness wanderings. There's reference that's applied to their future exile sufferings. Um, being tried or tested as silver is refined, and that's an imagery of judgment on Israel to purify them, the consuming of the dross. So places like Isaiah 48.10, um, Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 9, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 3. Um, verse 11, the net and the heavy burdens on their backs is descriptive of the bitter bondage in Egypt. Um, again, looking forward to exile as well. Uh, in verse 12, being subjugated, being, being rode over their heads, um, which would speak both bondage and also of the future exile in places like Isaiah chapter 51, verse 23. Uh, and the various trials of exile, um, like the passing through the water and the fire, um, Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. But the exile will end with a new exodus, like the wilderness wanderings did, and a restoration to the promised land. And that's what we see, actually, at the end of verse 12, being brought out into a wealthy, into a saturated, into a running over place. And this is a reference to um, the promised land that they will be that they will be brought into at the end of their exile in that future day. So verses 13 to 15 then is where the shift to the singular begins. Um, and in verse 13, this shift to the singular, uh, it also not only does it shift to the singular, but it also shifts to the present. So the, the singular shows that the anticipated future fulfilling of these past promises and works, is dependent on the deliverance of the psalmist. So again, we talked about how that in the structure of this psalm, it is inverted. We, we would expect it to begin individual and personal 
and move toward future and universal or global um, or at least communal. But this, that, that's inverted in the structure of this psalm. So it begins worldwide, calling on the ends of the earth to praise God and all of, looking at all of the earth worshiping God. And then it comes down to the psalmist saying, I'm going to go to your temple and I'm going to offer um, rams and goats and, and bullocks and I'm going to pay my vows. Um, so it, in other words, what it's showing us moving, doing that shift is that this anticipated future is in some way dependent on the deliverance of this psalmist. And again, most likely David. So the payment of vows is typically associated with thanksgiving and praise for deliverance from crises. And we have seen that uh, more recently in Psalm 56 and verse 12, Psalm 61 and verse uh, 5 and verse 8, Psalm 65 and verse number 1. Verse 14 gives us an explanation of the vows, and it is linked with trouble. Now, the first lament of David reflected the opposition of the nations to God and his anointed. Um, He spoke of those who troubled him. Same term used, Psalm 3 and verse number 1. So Psalm 2, you remember, speaks of the nations opposing God and his anointed, um, that he's going to bring his king to Zion He's going to rule over the nations to the uttermost part of the earth. And then in Psalm 3, we're we're shifted to David in his present time. And he talks about the multitudes of those that have risen up against him and troubled him. So now we see Psalm 2 being played out in the prefiguring by David, um, who is the, the prefigure of the Messiah, the greater David that is to come. So this trouble that is referred to is also referred to in some of the laments, Psalm 59 and verse 16, Psalm 60, verses 11 and 12. Uh, uh, Verse 15 refers to the offerings and the sacrifices, the rams, the bulls, the goats. And of course, the rams, the bulls, and the goats were in the present time, in the tabernacle or in the temple, in in God's house. Um, And those things were in that time a shadow of the substance that was to come, which was the offering of the Messiah himself. The writer of Hebrews uh, refers to that in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10 um, particularly. Verses 16 to 19, we have another call to praise. And here we have personal testimony to the community. That's another convention um, that we have seen that that um, after the lament and after the deliverance from the crisis, that there's a turning to the community and there's a testifying of what God has done. This is, this is what's happening. This is what God has done. Let's all together praise him. So he mentions those who fear God in verse number 16. That would be those who submit to, um, to God's son. Um, public praise in verse 17, declaring with his mouth and his tongue, uh, ref- uh, echoing Psalm 65 verse 3 as well. And in verse 18, he mentions the cherishing or the loving of iniquity um, and that how that this would separate. God would not hear me. In other words, God would not have delivered me. God would not have heard me. Um, Sin separates, obviously, from God, closes his ear, Psalm or Isaiah 59, verse number two. And it's also um, later picked up in the Gospels. In fact, in, in John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42, Jesus talked about how the Father hears him always. Hears him always. Why? Because he is truly the righteous 
sufferer. He is truly the innocent one. Verse 19 speaks of praising God for having been heard. Um, this has this. We've seen this in a number of Psalms, uh, probably the first place, maybe Psalm 6, verses 8 to 9. We've seen this in a number of Psalms that the, the one who is righteous in his cause, the one who has taken refuge in God, is heard by him and is delivered by him. And then verse 20 gives us concluding praise. Um, now this phrase turned away, this word here, sometimes it's translated as departed. Um, and we can see how this is a resolution of the abandonment motif, the, the exile motif that we have seen in some of the previous Psalms, in the Korah Psalms, as well as the David Psalms, and even somewhat in this Psalm. I mean, there's some of that exile um, motif that comes in as well. But his statement is that he's not forsaken. God's not departed. God's not abandoned. God has not left him, nor has God removed his mercy. That is the Hebrew term chesed. Um, it is sometimes, again, translated loving kindness, mercy, steadfast love. I've seen it translated a number of ways, loyal love. Um, and it's, it's difficult, to, as I understand it, to put it into a single English term. But it is oftentimes associated with God's promises and refers to him being faithful to keep his word. So this is an acknowledgement. As this psalm comes to its end, this is an acknowledgement of all the good that has come and of all the good that will come is through God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. Of course, this echoes the promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 15, the covenant that God made with David that he said he would not take away. Okay, interpretation. Psalm 66 teaches strongly the, the sovereignty of God. So when you look at verses 10 to 12, when he's talking about the sufferings of the exile in Israel, he states clearly that God brought this affliction on Israel. So verse 10, for thou, O God, hast proved us, thou hast tried us, thou broughtest us, thou laced affliction, thou hast caused men to ride over our heads, and thou broughtest out into a wealthy place. So God brought their deliverance on them, or their afflictions on them, but God also effected their deliverance, like in verse 6 and there in, in verse number 12. So the sovereignty of God is um, depicted over nature, in verse 6, where he parts the waters of the sea and parts the waters of the river, uh, his sovereignty is seen over the nations of the world, verses 3 and 4 and, and verse number 7 as well. The whole earth is called to praise his glory, his name, and his works. And that means that God is making himself known to the world through his works, and especially in regard to Israel. Now, the psalm doesn't dwell on the specifics or we might say the precise mechanics of the deliverance. And one reason for that, I believe, is, is a device and it indicates divine miracle. So it's, it's not a fixation on all of the means of deliverance but it is an emphasis on the fact that God has done this. And however all he has brought that about, 
He is the divine miracle behind it all. And so this praise psalm um, celebrates essentially God making new, uh, a great aspect of his sovereignty as well. Uh, The Messianic hope of Psalm 66 is seen through the communal praise and salvation extended to the world through the deliverance of the psalmist. And again, another good reason to believe that David was, in fact, the author of this psalm. If it's not David, then the psalmist, whoever it is, is still prefiguring God's anointed son, king, being delivered from all enemies and even from death. So there in verse 9, you have this just slight allusion to death and resurrection in verse number 9. You have enemies subdued under him, uh, which again echoes Psalm 2. You have the worldwide worship in his kingdom, um, which is prophesied in places like Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10, Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 22, Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 16, in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 and 11. So the new exodus is pictured here as a mirror of the former. It's 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 um, related in, in some ways. The former was a... Uh, a prefiguring of it. The Red Sea and the Jordan crossings were at either end of the wilderness testing. So you had um, the, the crossing the Red Sea, you have this, this wilderness testing, and then you cross the Jordan into the promised land. And so the future restoration um, will also come after the day of the Lord, after the culmination of their exile testing and purification. So they will survive the flood of his judgment when they are refined as silver and his remnant will enter into his kingdom in the promised land. All right, application. I have two of these. How that Psalm 66 speaks to us today um, as modern readers. Number one, Understanding Psalm 66 helps us understand the nearness of God. Um, sometimes when we think about God's sovereignty um, or his, many of his great attributes, and we think about God's universal scale purpose and his works and God's will from before the foundation of the world. We're thinking in, in such high and great and grand terms that it can make us feel small and disconnected. And even as if the troubles we face are mere trifles and trivialities. Well, this psalm, as it progresses, and again, it has this inverted structure for a praise psalm, and it progresses from grand purpose down to personal redemption. So this psalm does help to remind us that all of God's perfections and performance and and the incomprehensibility of, of his being and his attributes and all these grand and great things, his perfections and his performances are for the redemption and restoration of all those who trust in him, whether Jew or Gentile. Number two, 
Understanding Psalm 66 also helps us understand our response. What is our response to God? What is our response, even even to the crossing of the Red Sea, even to the deliverances of Israel, to uh, the the exile? And what is our response to these things? Well, this call to praise and worship extends to all the earth, and it extends to uh, even to us today. So this psalm is instructing us: praise and worship God, and tell of His great works. <laughs> 